Alfred? Yes, sir? Pass me all the reports of this new supervillain in Gotham. At once, Master Bruce. May I ask whether Sir will be having any food or sleep this week, sir? Villains don't sleep, Alfred. Nor should I. Of course, sir. Here you are. Huh. The astronomer. How novel. A relative of the Riddler, perhaps. Let's hope not. Do we have any tracking on him? He's been seen in Manchester, Birmingham, and London. Those are in England, sir. New Zealand, India, and Poland. Well-traveled. New audio message. It's from the astronomer, sir. Shall I play it? Yes, please, Alfred. The Jodcast. When we find an alien, we'll tell you. With Roy Smits, Nick Rattenbury, Megan Argo, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast. March 2009 episode. Hello and welcome to the March 2009 episode of The Jodcast. I'm Nick Rattenbury and with me in The Jodcast studio is Roy Smits. Hello, Nick. Hello. Now, tell us what's coming up in this show, Roy. So in this episode, we have the International Year of Astronomy 2009. We have an interview with Marco Spans about quasars. We have, of course, The Night Sky with Ian Morrison. And we have your feedback. But before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Fermi spies a record-breaking GLB. Insights into the first starbursts, and surprising star formation from primordial clouds. Gamma-ray bursts are enormously energetic events, thought to be signatures of massive stellar explosions in distant galaxies. On September the 16th last year, a spectacular event was recorded by the Gamma-ray Burst Monitor, or GBM, on board the Fermi Gamma-ray Satellite. Launched on the 11th of June 2008, the Fermi Gamma-ray Space Telescope searches for these events using sensitive instruments, as well as surveying the sky to investigate the high-energy emission from other interesting objects, such as active galaxies, pulsars and solar flares, as well as unidentified sources of high-energy gamma-rays. Since its launch, Fermi has triggered follow-up observations of 58 GLBs detected with the Large Area Telescope, another science instrument on board the satellite. Located in the southern constellation of Carina, the burst of September the 16th, given the designation GRB 080916C, was quickly observed with other telescopes on the ground. A team using the 2.2-metre telescope at La Silla in Chile calculated that the object was at a redshift of 4.35, a distance of 12.2 billion light-years. Analysis of the results published in Science Express on the 19th of February show that this burst is the most energetic observed to date, releasing more than twice the estimated energy of the previous record holder. Knowing both the distance and the brightness of a burst means that the energy of the explosion can be estimated. Although GRBs emit their energy in very narrow jets, estimates of their energies are usually based on how much energy would have been involved if it was emitted equally in all directions, a quantity known as the isotropic energy. In this case, the isotropic energy of the burst was almost 9,000 times the power of a single regular supernova explosion, and the gas emitting the initial gamma-ray flash must have been travelling at almost the speed of light. 
As well as being record-breaking, this burst displayed another unusual characteristic. A five-second time delay between the arrival on Earth of the highest and lowest energy photons. Such a delay has been seen only in one previous burst, and the explanation is not yet certain. One idea is that the delay is caused by the nature of the material surrounding the explosion. The low and high energy gamma rays could be coming from different parts of the jet, or created through different mechanisms, according to Peter Michelson, the principal investigator for Fermi's Large Area Telescope. Another suggestion comes from the speculative idea of quantum gravity. If correct, then at its smallest scales, space is not smooth, but turbulent, and this turbulence could have stronger effects on higher energy photons, slowing them down slightly compared to other photons. This effect would be very small and only visible over huge distances, such as that to a distant GRB. Further observations of other GRBs at different distances should be able to distinguish between the two ideas. If the environment around the GRB is causing the time delay, then the signal should be similar for GRBs at any distance. However, if the effects of quantum gravity are causing the discrepancy, then the time delay should be more pronounced for more distant GRBs. Fermi is designed to operate for at least five years, and so should collect a large sample of GRB events over that time. Exactly how galaxies form has been a topic of debate for some time. It is not clear whether stars begin forming everywhere at once, or just in clumps around the disk, but research published in Nature during February has found evidence that star-forming regions in young galaxies are small, but forming stars at astonishingly high rates. A team of astronomers led by Fabian Walter at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Germany studied a distant galaxy 12.8 billion light-years away to investigate the early stages of galactic evolution less than a billion years after the Big Bang. The galaxy, a quasar known as J1148 plus 5251, located in Ursa Major, is one of the most distant galaxies known and provides a view of star formation in the very early universe. The team used the IRAM interferometer, a radio telescope located on the Plateau de Boer in the French Alps, to search for the highly redshifted signal of ionized carbon, a reliable signal of ongoing star formation. What they found was that the star formation was concentrated in a region at the centre of the galaxy, with a radius of about 750 parsecs, and apparently forming around 1,000 solar mass stars per square kiloparsec each year. This is similar to the rate of star formation seen in active galaxies much closer to the Milky Way, forming stars much more recently but over a much smaller area. One nearby example is the galaxy known as ARP220, which is forming stars at a similar rate, but in an area only 100 parsecs in radius. Even in our own Milky Way, the rate of star formation is an estimated mere one solar mass per year. Some regions within our galaxy are as active as the centre of J1148 plus 5251, but on a much smaller scale, such as the core of the Orion Nebula. Stars form when clouds of gas collapse under gravity. As the cloud collapses, the temperature and pressure increase until a limit is reached where the collapse is halted and stars stop forming. This limit has been reached in the core of the Orion Nebula, and in the centre of J1148 plus 5251, and according to Walter, J1148 is like a hundred million Orion Nebula-type regions combined. This result is important in ongoing studies of galaxy formation, 
suggesting that galaxies in the early universe formed from the center. In the early stages of a galaxy, the core forms stars at a spectacular rate and grows in size over time as young galaxies collide and merge. Observations such as these are tricky. The signature of ionized carbon is radiation in the infrared part of the spectrum, but the huge distance to these very early galaxies causes a cosmological redshift, which stretches the wavelength of the radiation as it travels towards us here on Earth, shifting it to the radio part of the spectrum, where it is harder to resolve fine details. At a distance of almost 13 billion light-years, the core of J1148 appears about the same size as a one-euro coin placed at a distance of 18 kilometers. Observations of this sort are a key aim of ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, currently under construction high in the Chilean Andes. Orbiting around large galaxies are collections of dwarf galaxies, relatively small groups of stars gravitationally bound to a larger companion. New results from the Galaxy Evolution Explorer, a satellite operating in the ultraviolet part of the spectrum, has found a collection of very unusual dwarf galaxies, forming in a way that has not previously been seen. Most galaxies in the nearby universe contain large amounts of dark matter, and their stars formed from gas that had already been processed by a previous generation of stars, and so contains a significant proportion of elements heavier than helium. Large galaxies, especially those involved in mergers, are often surrounded by tidal dwarf galaxies, formed from the gas stripped out in the interaction. These tidal dwarfs have very little dark matter, but a high proportion of heavy elements, since the gas used to form them comes from previous populations of stars in the nearby larger galaxy. But a study of gas in a region known as the Leo Ring, led by David Thilker of Johns Hopkins University in the US, has found a collection of dwarf galaxies forming from gas which lacks both dark matter and heavy elements. The Leo Ring is a huge cloud of mainly hydrogen and helium gas, surrounding two massive galaxies, M105 and NGC 3384, located in the constellation of Leo. The cloud contains a mass of hydrogen almost 2 million times the mass of the Sun, and is 200 kiloparsecs, or more than 650,000 light-years in diameter. It was first discovered 25 years ago, but is only visible at radio wavelengths, where emission from hydrogen atoms is detectable. No optical emission has been detected from the ring, despite sensitive observations, and no stars have been found to be associated with it. It is thought that the cloud is a primordial object, leftover gas from the early universe, which has remained unchanged over billions of years, lacking the heavy elements created by stellar populations. The new observations with the GALAX satellite, however, have discovered evidence that star formation has been happening recently within the ring. Young stars burn very bright and very hot, emitting large numbers of ultraviolet photons which GALAX is sensitive to. What the team discovered was ultraviolet signatures of young stars in several clumps of gas within the southern half of the ring, and they suggest that this is due to dwarf galaxies forming from the primordial gas. Normal galaxies are dominated by dark matter, so these star-forming regions in the Leo ring where dark matter is absent are somewhat unusual and possibly demonstrates a new mode of dwarf galaxy formation. The study was published in Nature on the 19th of February, and the authors suggest that clouds similar to the Leo ring 
could have been more common in the early universe, and so many more dark matter-deficient dwarf galaxies may be out there waiting to be discovered. And finally, at four minutes to five in the morning on February the 10th, an active communications satellite operated by Iridium and a retired Russian military satellite collided 800 kilometers above Siberia. Moving at a relative speed of 10 kilometers per second, the collision released an estimated 50 kilojoules of energy per gram, according to researchers at the University of Southampton in the UK who simulated the incident. The collision took place in a busy part of Earth orbit and created more than 600 pieces of debris, large enough to be tracked from the ground. The space around Earth is already home to many hundreds of satellites, including 66 satellites operated by Iridium, and the amount of debris is increasing every year, raising the risk of further damaging collisions between objects. While astronauts on the International Space Station use a much lower orbit, and so are not likely to be at risk from debris from this particular incident, it has increased the chances of a collision during a planned shuttle mission to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. Even before this particular incident, a previous test of a Chinese anti-satellite weapon in 2007 had increased the chances of a catastrophic collision during a Hubble servicing mission to close to NASA's acceptable level of risk for a manned mission. This incident has further increased that risk and could mean the mission is scrapped altogether. The problem of space debris is only going to get worse as more satellites are launched into increasingly busy orbits filled with older satellites which are often left in orbit once they reach the end of their operational lifetimes. And while both NASA and ESA track many thousands of pieces of space debris, there are many more fragments of space junk orbiting Earth which are far too small to be detected from the ground, but which could cause serious damage to another orbiting spacecraft if another collision were to occur. Thanks for that, Megan. Now, this year, as you all know, is the International Year of Astronomy, and one of the projects carried out during the International Year of Astronomy is called 100 Hours of Astronomy. This is where we have 100 consecutive hours where people around the world are doing astronomy, various projects, observing, outreach, all sorts of things. If you are involved with or know of an astronomy event which will be occurring sometime between the 2nd and 5th of April, do go to the 100 Hours of Astronomy website and register your event. The website is 100, that's 100, hoursofastronomy.org. So anybody can participate? Anybody can participate, yes. Fantastic. So if you're planning to go out with your own telescope, for instance, maybe you could get a group of your friends to join you, register the event as just being a star party, anything like that, public lectures, experiments, any old thing, go to 100hoursofastronomy.org and check it out. Very good. So, Nick, I understand you had an interview with Marco Spans. Yes, Marco Spans from uh, the Netherlands yeah. uh, came and gave us a very interesting talk here at the Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics, and I caught up with him, asked him about his research into the first quasars of the universe. Joining me now is Professor Marco Spans from the University of Groningen, and your research is in quasars, particularly quasars in the early universe. Please tell us a bit about that. Thank you, Nick. Current observations tell us that most galaxies that we see in the sky contain, in the very centers, a supermassive black hole. A supermassive, you should think of something that really is millions of times more massive than our own sun. Why these black holes are there is a big mystery. 
we know that they're there through their indirect gravitational effect on stars that orbit around these black holes and gas and dust that we can, can see. But why they have grown so massive, um, that is a mystery. Particularly when we look into the very early phases of the universe, what we astronomers often call high redshift. The redshift means that it's an indication for the expansion of the universe, and we see the universe expanding all around us. So if we go back to the very early universe, we see those supermassive black holes already. Now, that makes the mystery even thicker, the plot even thicker, for a very simple reason. When the universe was young, you have even less time to grow these things. In fact, when you see them now, the universe is about 13 billion years old. It's a long time. But we see those black holes pretty much 100 million times as massive as our own sun already when the universe was only 1 billion years old. So when you thought you had 10 billion years, no, in fact, you only have 1 billion years. So one of the main aspects of my research is to understand why those black holes can grow as quickly as they have already in the early universe. One question from me, which might be somewhat naive, but back in the early universe, the universe was somewhat more dense stuff was closer to each other. So perhaps is it so surprising that you can grow something very heavy back in the early universe when the universe was rather more dense than it is now? Indeed, Nick, that's a very good point. The universe, simply because the volume of the universe was smaller back in those days, the densities are higher. So it's definitely true that there is much more material available in a smaller volume than currently. Another aspect is that all the galaxies that are in the process of forming in the early universe are also closer together and may sometimes merge. So what can happen is that if you have a black hole in one galaxy and a black hole in another and those galaxies merge, then those central black holes, after a bit of time, they have to spiral into the new joint center of these galaxies, will merge as well. So while the black holes are individually growing in this denser environment, they may subsequently be helped by the very merging process that is much more prominent in the early universe. All right. So we postulate that these supermassive black holes exist. What is the observational evidence for them? There are a number of indications. Um, if we look very close to home, the central massive black hole in our own Milky Way, we can observe basically in real time the orbits of stars very close to this black hole. Um, in fact, one of the stars, S2, is its indication, orbits a central black hole in roughly a few years. Um, so if you take a few snapshots, a few years apart, you can see this thing orbiting around a black spot of nothingness. But of course, you no know, gravity doesn't work through nothing, so we can infer that there must be a very concentrated object around which this star is orbiting. Now that's close to home. If we go to galaxies uh, a bit further away, we can still follow these stars, maybe not individually, but we can get a gist of how all these stars as a ensemble orbit around again a central object um, in such a galaxy. And then by carefully solving the um, Newtonian dynamics equations, we can get an idea of what the general orbits of these stars must be. And again, we can infer then that there must be a very massive object within a relatively small volume. Now, of course, we can think of many objects that in principle could be stable massive object and not be black holes, but Sometimes you extrapolate. Um, if you look at the volumes that these stars are orbiting around, it does appear that the only stable form of matter that at least we know about right now can only be a black hole. So not like a white dwarf or a population of neutron stars. It has to be a black hole. It is the simplest solution to have, isn't it? The simplest theory 
to have a supermassive black hole at the center of these galaxies for everything else that we can observe, the motions of the stars that you mentioned, to be as we observe them, we must have a supermassive black hole. What's the connection with quasars? What is a quasar, first of all? A quasar S stands for QSO, quasi-stellar object. It basically goes back to the time when we, for the first time, saw objects in the sky that looked like stars, so quasi-stellar objects that when you looked at them in more detail, it turned out, however, that their spectra were not like regular stars. So even though they appeared as stars in the sky, when you sort of looked at their light emission in finer detail, you saw that the different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that were represented by this object were nothing like a star. The conclusion was then that they must be very, very distant objects. And at the same time, because they were so distant, this immediately meant that they must be intrinsically extremely luminous. Now this goes back, if you think again about what I said about the redshift, um, these quasars can be observed and have been observed all the way almost to the dawn of time. The highest redshift quasar that we have right now is at what we call a redshift of 6.4, almost 7, um, and then the age of the universe is not more and this sounds like still a big number, but it's not more than 800 million years. Now, again, if you would live 800 million years, surely this is a long time. However, the Earth itself is already 4.5 billion years. So imagine that. You know, this quasar was already there with its supermassive black hole, um, while the entire age of our Earth is a multiple in terms of time compared to this early phase. We understand that uh, black holes find it very difficult to emit anything. Certainly nothing is postulated to uh, move from within the event horizon of a black hole. Uh, however, how do these quasars emit? Indeed, Nick. What happens is the following. The pool of gravity attracts material within a certain radius of this black hole. As it moves toward the black hole, a very f important physical quantity like angular momentum forces this gas because it's mostly gas, a bit of dust, and dust is a different topic, maybe we can discuss about this later, but imagine gas like hydrogen and helium moving toward the black hole, but because of angular momentum, you should think of an ice skater that slowly retracts his arms while spiraling, this gas starts to spiral into the black hole and settles into a disk. Now this disk is what actually emits the radiation. So the black hole itself is very pitch black. However, this material on its way to the black hole settles in this disk and as it moves around this black hole, friction between the different gas particles causes this disk to heat up to extremely high temperatures. Easily a million degrees uh, Kelvin. Very, very, very hot. A thousand times hotter than the surface of the sun, pretty much as hot as the center of the sun. When the gas is this hot, it can emit a lot of radiation, particularly X-ray radiation. So when we Look at the sky, now this time not in optical light, like when we follow stars, but in, with X-ray telescopes, we can find, sometimes directly and sometimes indirectly, the X-ray emission of this accretion disk around a central black hole. And then again, by looking at this emission signature, we can infer how quickly this material must be accreting onto the black hole, because the faster the rate of accretion, basically, the higher the temperatures are that you could reach. All right, how many quasars do we know of in the universe so far? So far, many thousands, many thousands, and already dozens even in the early universe. Now, of course, it's easy to see things close by, um, and people often do what we call blind surveys. You just 
look at a piece of sky simply because you haven't looked at it before. And these things, again, these quasars are relatively easy to find because they're the brightest things out there. Um, so often when you just survey a piece of the sky, these things naturally arise. And the, the quasars that we've discovered at High Redshift indeed were in initially done by a, uh, uh, an all-sky survey where now, maybe one out of a hundred objects that they found wasn't really a galaxy, but was a core of a galaxy within an accreting black hole, and then we call it a QSO. But interestingly enough, now even in the early universe, we're getting so many quasars that we can statistically study their properties. Because imagine this, you have many quasars, and you have them spaced out through time, from the early universe all the way to the present, then you can study what is happening, at least statistically, because of course each object will be observed at a relative time compared to our time now on, on Earth. But still, if all these objects are intrinsically similar, obey the same laws of physics, and those laws of physics do not change with time, then by looking at the statistics of these sources through time, we can see how the average black hole in the universe evolves. How quickly it, grow, it grows in mass, maybe sometimes, um, this black hole is sitting around doing nothing. Not all black holes that we see are quasars. Some of, some of these galaxies have supermassive black holes, but there's simply no material to accrete anymore, and hence they don't shine as brightly as the others. And it's very important to understand what the so-called duty cycle is. So which fraction of its life is this black hole actually actively emitting like a QSO? What are some of these general properties? Uh, are older black holes bigger, smaller? What are the general trends that you can observe statistically, as you say? Yes. Basically, what we find is that there is an interesting relationship between the mass of the super black hole, um, supermassive black hole, and the mass of the central part of the galaxy in which it resides. This relationship um, is nowadays called the Magorian relationship, was initially um, discovered observationally by Magorian, um, and roughly it says the following. If you have a central part of a galaxy, and that central part you should think of something of the order of a size of a thousand parsecs, it's like 3,000 light years across, and typically such a region can contain up to a billion stars. If you measure that mass, and you compare that mass to the mass of the central black hole inside this central region, then that ratio is about a thousand to one. So about one thousandth by mass of the central part of such a galaxy resides in the mass of the black hole. Now this is interesting because that size where all those stars are is so large that it cannot be a coincidence that this black hole knows about the central region in which it resides or the other way around. Now, of course the easy explanation is that it's gravity. All this gas that I spoke about that spirals into the black hole also spirals already into the central part of these galaxies. So out of this gas, we can also form stars. So the idea is, and this is going back to your question, what we think we are seeing right now, at least statistically, is that very early on in the universe, these black holes grow, but they grow coevally with the stars that form inside them. So basically, as you build up the mass of the central black hole, you also form all the stars that we now see in orbit around those black holes. And that fraction apparently is about one in a thousand right now and we do not yet yet have sufficient data to address the question whether this relationship this Mogorian relationship also holds at much higher redshift but the indications that we have so far is that it seems that maybe those black holes are already very massive 
in the absence or not in the complete availability of all those stars around them. So that they maybe grow before they grow all the stars around them. But this is still very tentative. So we're not 100% sure whether the black hole grows in mass along with collecting the stars around it, or whether the black hole appeared first and accreted a galaxy around it, or at least the central parts of the galaxy around it. That's fascinating stuff. Now, how do you actually observe these quasars? You mentioned that these quasars, the accretion disks around these supermassive black holes, emit a lot of radiation, a lot of it in the X-ray in particular. How else do we can we observe them? I mean, do we have to have an X-ray satellite up in space to observe these? Not necessarily. Um, you can indeed see them in the X-rays. You can also see them in the optical. They emit strong optical emission, continuum emission, like the sun emits continuum emission. But sometimes you can also see them in emission lines, so very narrow spectral features, as we call them. If you take the electromagnetic spectrum, sometimes radiation comes out in small bands. We call those lines. Um, there are particular lines of hydrogen that are very bright in uh, in uh, QSOs, but a problem always with optical and X-ray observations is that the light that is emitted by these accreting black holes is emitted very close to the central black hole and hence has to make its way out of the galaxy. Um, on its way out of the galaxy, it can be extincted, meaning that it is absorbed close to the black hole in the gas that is in fact being accreted by the black hole, and as it is absorbed, we cannot see it anymore. Now, what we can do is the following. It turns out that the same X-ray radiation that we sometimes see directly or indirectly, um, even if it's, it's absorbed, we know then for a fact that the energy associated with this electromagnetic field is stored as heat inside the accretion disk around this black hole. This radiation can then subsequently come out in other wavelengths. It can be re-emitted by dust grains, that are also orbiting this black hole, and in particular it can come out in emission lines, but this time not emitted by atoms, but by molecules. Molecules, because they are more massive in a sense than atoms, they consist of different atoms, can emit radiation at much longer wavelengths, typically wavelengths in the far infrared and millimeter regime. Now, this is important because those longer wavelengths are not as well extincted by the gas close to the black hole as the shorter wavelengths are. So even though this is slightly indirect, we think we understand these physical processes extremely well, so we can then see the effect of the X-ray emission from the accreting gas as a fingerprint in the emissions of molecules, and you should think of molecules you know of, carbon, carbon monoxide, for instance, <clears throat> a molecule we all know. You can look at these emission lines and then not only see how bright they are and connect that to how much gas is being accreted by the black hole, but also looking at how these molecules are moving in orbit around this black hole to actually deduce parameters like what is the mass of the central black hole and how quickly is this gas literally in orbit around the black hole. How do you measure the velocity of gas going around the central massive black hole in this method? By if you, Let's say you see an emission line of uh, carbon monoxide, let's say for the sake of argument. How do you go from that to measuring how it's moving around the central massive black hole? If you have a line, you need to, what we call, spectrally resolve the line. So this radiation is emitted, but it's emitted in different amounts at different velocities, where velocity is, of course, always relative to our own motion. Now, we know the motion of the Earth around the Sun and the motion of the Sun quite well, so we can correct for that. But then all this gas is still in orbit around the central black hole, so we would see gas both moving towards us and moving away from us. Now, as gas is close to the black hole, 
it will be moving faster. So if you can not only spectrally resolve this line, but also spatially resolve the source, so that you look at this source and you can see how gas moves with a certain mean velocity far away from the black hole and what closer to the black hole, then you would have different measurements at different mean distances, projected differences, uh, distances, projected distances from the central black hole. And hence you would see then what the mean motion is, the mean velocity of this gas as a function of radius. And then basically it's like observing the different motions of the planets in our own solar system. If you would have a number of measurements at different radii, you could then infer the loss of Kepler and basically deduce how big is the central mass around all around which all this gas must be orbiting. Very good. Now, have we found any quasars which are only detectable through their longer wavelength emission, that we don't see them directly through their X-rays coming directly from the accretion disk, but from the heating of the accretion disk, the X-rays on the accretion disk, which, as you mentioned, then emits at longer wavelengths? Have we, have we got any hidden quasars, yes. so to speak? Yes, Nick. In fact, we do. We call these uh, highly obscured so sources. They're sources where the the column of gas that is in front of the accreting material of the black hole is so large that we know from physical principles that all the X-rays must be absorbed. And in fact, when we look at such sources, we don't see any X-rays. Now, we have a measure of how big the column is through, again, these longer wavelengths. Um, and some of these highly obscured sources, they're sometimes also referred to as ULURCs, ultra-luminous infrared galaxies, because they're extremely bright in the infrared. Hence, in fact, that's how they were observed in the first place, in the infrared, again, at these longer wavelengths. Um, have no X-ray emission, and sometimes we're lucky. Sometimes these very bright sources are gravitationally lensed. And there is one case that is a quasar that's at the redshift of roughly four, and the age of the universe then is not more than about two billion years. Because this source is lensed, gravitationally lensed, by an object that is between this source and ourselves, we are able to peer deeper into the center of this galaxy, because usually this light would be too dim to observe, but because of the lensing effect of curvature of space-time, we can peer into the central few hundred light-years of this QSO. And lo and behold, when we look at how the carbon monoxide is emitting in the very center, central parts of this AGN, this active galactic nucleus, as we call it, we see extremely bright emission, much brighter than in our own Milky Way, much brighter than in other galaxies that form a lot of stars but do not have a very powerful accretion disk. So, yes, there are the first hints that these systems indeed are the way we think they are, highly obscured objects that are rapidly growing and feeding their central black hole. And, of course, the hope is that future observatories will allow us to probe much deeper in the past of the universe and find many more of these obscured sources. Is it likely to be easier to find quasars in the manner that you describe, looking for their emission at, well, this indirect emission at longer wavelengths? Is it easier to find them at longer wavelengths than, say, through an X-ray survey? In principle, I think, yes, it is. Um, part of the reason is that if you want to observe in the X-ray, you basically always have to go up into space. Um, and, of course, to make a very sensitive detection, you basically have to have a lot of collection collection area. Yeah, Just like in the optical, if you have a big lens, you can focus more light and you can do a more sensitive measurement. So getting something up into space is always limited by the size of the mirror, as we call it, the lens that we can actually bring up, up into space. However, for the millimeter, we can also do observations on Earth. 
And in the future, there'll be a very exciting new telescope called ALMA, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. It's in the Atacama Desert, which is in Chile, five kilometers up on a mountain to make sure that any water vapor that is still in that desert, and it's really a very dry desert, doesn't inhibit any observation, because water, of course, is very good in absorbing radiation in a millimeter, so we want to have as little water as we can. But if you have such a telescope on Earth, you can pretty much make it as large as you like. And ALMA, which will be operational uh, in about 2013, only four years from now, will be able to make observations that are so sensitive that we, at least that's what we expect right now, we can detect these quasars at redshifts up to 10, so when the age of the universe is only 500 million years old, um, in, if they're really there, a matter of hours. In fact, you can look at a piece of sky with this telescope, and this, this telescope comprises, when it's done, 66 smaller telescopes, which together synthesize, as we call, a much bigger telescope. This is called an interferometer, where small telescopes talk to each other and basically make up a much bigger telescope. And we can, again, look at a random piece of sky, and our expectation is that if you look at a few square arc minutes, it's a relatively small piece of sky, you should already find a few of those sources. If you do this for a somewhat larger area of the sky, you should be able to find sources, like I described with all these supermassive black holes, really growing. And because the age of the universe is so much smaller as you go more and more back in time, you see a relatively faster evolution. Because mm -hmm. you know already now that there are massive black holes with masses of about 10 to the 9, about a billion times the mass of the sun. So these things, if they're already that massive, only a billion years after the creation of the universe, they must be growing extremely fast shortly before that. But things that grow fast must emit a lot of radiation, because all this mass goes into the central black hole, and on its way into the black hole, it must lose some of its energy. And it's precisely this energy that we believe comes out, at least for a significant fraction, in the millimeter regime, so that on Earth we can detect it quite well. Well, this is exciting research, and we look forward to ALMA being operational in 2013 and you discovering thousands more quasars. What is the next step for you right now until ALMA becomes operational? Well, next April, if all goes well, a satellite will be launched, which is called Herschel. It's a far-infrared satellite, so it observes at, sl at slightly shorter wavelengths than ALMA, few hundred micrometers. Um, this satellite has to be launched because, again, at a few hundred micrometers, the atmosphere of the Earth really absorbs all radiation that we're interested in. Now, Herschel does not have the same sensitivity, as we, as we call it, as ALMA, but it will be able to observe slightly different lines. Particularly, it will be able to observe the carbon monoxide that I mentioned in even more highly excited states. So when the gas is even closer to the central uh, black hole. So, Herschel will not be able to resolve the QSOs the way ELMA can, but it may already find the signature of the warmest molecular gas close to these black holes, and then that could already give us better statistics on the not-so-distant universe. So Herschel will probably not be able to find things that are more than a few billion years back in the history of our universe. Um, but first of all, that would already provide us nice targets to follow up on with, with ELMA, and it would definitely give us a confirmation or not, of the basic understanding that we have right now of what these accretion disks around these feeding black holes must look like. Exciting stuff. So we look forward to those results when they come in. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us about your research. Thank you very much, Nick. It was a pleasure.
Okay, thank you very much for that, Marco Spans. So quasars are a bit tricky to see with the naked eye, but for everything else, here's Ian Morrison with The Night Sky. Well, The Night Sky in March this year. Let's start with the stars. I've talked about the wonderful skyscape that you see just after sunset, centered on the constellation of Orion. You have Taurus up to its right, Canis Major down to its lower left, Germany up to the left of Orion. Now, if you want to learn more about that part of the sky that you see in the early evening, why don't you try going back to the segment about the night sky last month and the month before when I talk about them in some detail. So let me just briefly say something about the stars that you begin to see, let's say, in the later part of the evening. In fact, now it's not really that late. Over to the lower left of Germany, if you're looking to the southeast, shall we say, at about 10 o'clock in the evening, you have that rather lovely constellation of Leo the Lion. It's rather like the lions in Trafalgar Square, which are squatting on their haunches. Sometimes it's called the, the, the sickle, the, or the question mark, the, the head of the lion, the mane. And that drops down to his four knees, I suppose, where we have the star Regulus, which is the brightest star, obviously, in that constellation. Alpha Leonis is another name. Over to the lower left of Leo is rising the constellation of Virgo. To be honest, there's not an awful lot to see with your eyes. There's only one bright star called Spica. But between the tail of Leo and Spica, there's a wonderful part of the sky to observe with telescopes. It's called the realm of the galaxies. And in that direction, we're looking towards the largest cluster of galaxies in our vicinity, not surprisingly called the, the Virgo Cluster. And there may be a thousand galaxies there. It is, in fact, the heart of a supercluster, which is surrounded by smaller clusters, and then further out still, groups of galaxies, like our own local group, of which our own Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are the two largest members, perhaps about 40 to 50 members in our local group. We're right on the outskirts of that Virgo supercluster. So this is a place with a six-inch telescope or even bigger. You can see myriads or many, many galaxies. One other thing to point out, again, not so obvious to your unaided eye. If you go from the stars of Gemini and work your way across to Leo, again, that's a pretty blank part of the sky. You pass through the constellation of Cancer the Crab, and there aren't really any particularly bright stars. But do sweep across there with binoculars, because you will find a rather lovely little cluster, a very large open cluster of stars. It's called the Beehive Cluster, or Praesipi, and uh, it's a very nice object to observe in binoculars. Uh, below that is the constellation of Hydra, but again, there's nothing particularly obvious to see there. But if you sort of work upwards, over towards the north, you come, of course, to Ursa Major, again, one of the most well-known of the constellations. Now, in fact, Ursa Major is the great bear. We tend only to think and talk about part of it, which we call the plough in the United Kingdom. The Americans call the Big Dipper. And that apparently was the ladle that the farm housewife used to use to ladle out soup for the farm workers when they came in for their lunch. So it's a big ladle, but we call it the plough. 
and that's a very nice part of the sky to look at. Um, the two stars at the right-hand side of the plough are called the pointers. They point up towards the pole star. And if you look with binoculars at the tail, the second to the end star with binoculars you'll see is in fact a double star. It's called Alcor and Mizar, the horse and rider. If you look at that with a small telescope, in fact, the brighter in itself is a double star, and you also pick up a rather faint red star, making a rather nice triangle. It's a very nice little bit of the sky to look at, both with binoculars and with a small telescope. So let's move on to the planets. Well, we'll start perhaps in order of size. Jupiter is the brightest of the planets quite often, except, of course, for Venus. But although it's now moving further away from the sun in the pre-dawn sky, the elevation is still very low. The problem is that the plane of the ecliptic, that's along which you actually see the planets, is inclined at a very shallow angle to the eastern horizon in the morning. And although we have, in fact, Jupiter, Mars and Mercury all in that part of the ecliptic, they're only a few degrees above the horizon. In fact, uh, Jupiter might be seven degrees above the horizon uh, towards the end of the month. So you probably would need binoculars and a very good low eastern horizon. It would be at magnitude minus 2.1, so that's pretty bright. Um, a nice time to look for it actually is on the 22nd and 23rd of the month when you'll see it very close to a waning thin crescent moon. On the 22nd, it'll be to the left of the moon, on the 23rd to the right. So perhaps that's a rather nice time to try and look for it, the 22nd and 23rd of the month. Jupiter will gradually move away from the sun and be higher in the sky over the next three months, but really this isn't the best time to observe it. In complete contrast, Saturn is now, again apart from Venus, the best place planet in the sky. And it's rising basically about 7.30 at the beginning of the month and by sunset towards the end. It's lying below Leo the Lion. There's a little bit of Leo as a constellation that dips down quite far south into the two adjacent constellations below. And that's exactly where you'll find Saturn at the moment. It's the brightest object in that part of the sky. It's magnitude about 0.5. It's not as bright as we normally see it, and that's because the rings are almost edge on. Uh, this month, they have a tilt of about 2.8 degrees. That's going to wobble around a bit during the year, but in September, they will, in fact, I think, go edge on, and they'll disappear completely. So that's a nice planet to look at. It doesn't look quite as spectacular as you sometimes see it, but nevertheless, Saturn is an easy object to observe at the present time. Now Mercury, that's currently moving away from us and it's going to be on the far side of the Sun. That's called superior conjunction on the 31st of March. So at the very beginning of March there is a chance of seeing it just before dawn. It'll be about two degrees above the horizon so you'll certainly need binoculars and as I said because the ecliptic is at such a low angle, it's not the best time to observe it. So probably it's not a good month to try. Mars is pretty much in the same boat as Jupiter. It's 21 degrees away from the Sun as March begins, and it will have a magnitude of about 1.2, which isn't too bad. Um, over the month, the separation increases to 28 degrees, 
but nevertheless it'll only be about four degrees above the horizon as the sun rises. So it'll tend to be lost in the glare of the sun. And again, better wait a month or two to give it a chance to get further away from the sun. Well, you can't fail to spot Venus. It's been dominating the western sky for the last month, and it's still very high, at magnitude minus 4.5. You just cannot miss it. I saw it beautifully last night. Now, during the month, Venus is getting closer to the position of the sun. It's coming actually towards us. Its angular size is getting bigger. At the same time, the crescent that we see is getting thinner. It's a lovely thing to look at with a small telescope. So week by week this month, it'll be lower and lower in the sky. And in fact, by the 20th of the month, it will be quite hard to spot in the glare of the sun. So use the next couple of weeks, if there are clear nights, to have a good look at Venus. And do try to look with a telescope, if you can, to see the phase. It was Galileo's observations showing how the phase changed of Venus, and specifically, you could see it at almost full phase, that proved it was orbiting the Sun, not the Earth. And hence the Copernican idea of the solar system was correct and the Ptolemaic idea was wrong. Okay, well we don't really have many highlights this month, but there is a comet still in the sky. Um, on the 23rd of February, it passed just below Saturn. Sadly, in the UK, we were totally cloud-covered. But it was visible, in fact, last night, as I, I, I read this, this out to you, and a colleague of mine, Andrew Greenwood, from the Macclesfield Astronomical Society, had a very good view of it, as it basically was coming towards the star Regulus, below Regulus. And on the night sky guide, just put night sky into Google, you'll find it, I've put a chart that shows you the position of the comet over the first 11 days of the month. As it's now moving away from the Earth, in fact, it'll become less bright. So do try and look early on. It's moving quite quickly. And I should say that if you go onto the Sky and Telescope website, you can find more detailed star charts to help you locate it. It was fairly bright and obvious, a little bit of a tail showing in good binoculars last night. So hopefully we'll still be able to see it for a couple of weeks or so. Because the ecliptic in the evening is inclined at a high angle to the horizon, which is why Venus is appearing so high in the sky, it does give us a chance to see a very thin crescent moon, just about 27 hours after new moon. It's very hard to spot the moon much sooner than that. What you need to do is to go out and have a look on the 27th of March. If it's clear, look just north of west, touch north of west, above where you'll see the glare of the sun. Perhaps don't look hard until the sun has set so you can't damage your eyes. But if you lift up about 6 degrees from the horizon, somewhere around 6.30 on the 27th, you might well spot a very, very thin crescent. Only 1.6% of the moon's face will be illuminated. Now, I've never actually seen a moon 27 hours between uh, from new moon. I have, however, seen and photographed one 36 hours, but that was the other way round. That was, in fact, before uh, new moon and, in fact, the eclipse of the sun 
um, that we observed in China uh, last year. So to see one 27 hours after new moon is quite a feat, so it's probably worth a try. I should say something for those that live in the southern hemisphere. Well, if you look to the north, then in fact you do see in the early evening those stars I've been talking about in the last uh, month or so, Orion, Gemini and Taurus. They're all, of course, upside down for us. Uh, Gemini is um, basically due north. Below that, you might spot the bright star Capella in our Riga, just above the horizon. Above our Riga and Capella, you've got Orion, and then to its lower left, you've got Taurus with the Hyades and the Pleiades, two lovely open clusters to look at. So these are stars, of course, that we can see as well. And actually, as you go over from Gemini across to Leo, you come past the Beehive Cluster in Cancer. So a fair bit of what I've talked about, you can see as well. What, of course, we cannot see is the lovely sky looking towards the south. And rising up from the southern horizon, you have a beautiful part of the Milky Way coming up through Centaurus, then you go through Carina and Vela. Those are now constellations which were once part of a much bigger constellation called Argo, the ship. So Vela and Carina, parts of the ship. Um, two bright stars, Alpha Centauri and Beta Centauri, are the pointers, and they're just towards the southeast. They point up to the Southern Cross. Over to the left, away from Milky Way, you'll actually find a rather lovely fuzzy spot with binoculars. It's called Omega Centauri. Omega Centauri used to be thought to be a globular cluster. We have quite a large number that were formed at the time of our own Milky Way. They're sort of micro-galaxies, if you will, perhaps up to a million stars in a spherical distribution. But some of the stars in Omega Centauri look rather younger, and it's now thought it might well be the remains of a galaxy, i.e. the nucleus of that galaxy, whose outer parts were stripped off as they interacted with the gravitational field of our own Milky Way. Nevertheless, it's a very nice object. You'll easily pick it up with binoculars, and a small telescope will show it as a very beautiful object. It was a month or so ago when I was in the Southern Hemisphere looking at some of these lovely parts of the sky. I hope to be back again soon. Anyway, I do hope you enjoy looking at the sky during March. Chat to you again in a month's time. So now we come to your feedback. So we have feedback from you through our website. We also have some new topics on the forum and on the Facebook forum. So let's start with feedback from our website. So we have feedback from Patrick, Reverend Andrew Wakefield, and Andrea Ashworth, who are getting keen on listening to the Jotcast. And we have feedback from Michael Van Voren, who discovers up, who discovered atlasoftheuniverse.com and is now pondering the creation of the universe. Well, best of luck with that, Mike. We, we, we will do the same to ourselves. And, uh, yeah, thanks very much for all those links that you sent us. We will put some of them on the Jotcast page for other people to check out as well. On Facebook, many thanks to Joe Snyder, who reports his successful observations of Comet Lulin. 
Thank you very much for that. It's great to hear people out there doing real astronomy with telescopes or what have you. And part of his feedback, he asks if anybody else has successfully managed to observe Comet Lulin. So do join in the discussion on Facebook. Any observations you've made of Comet Lulin, or in fact anything else, we love hearing about specifically what you folk out there are looking at uh, in the night sky. It doesn't have to be with a telescope or binoculars, even just going out there in the night sky and noting things. Absolutely fantastic. So thanks very much to Joe for sending in that. On the Jodcast forum, there is currently a discussion going on about what is the favorite interview that the Jodcast have provided in our three years of history so far. So if you've got a particular favor that you want to comment or vote for, pretty much, then jump into that discussion on the Jodcast forum and contribute. So thanks very much to Earth Unit, Danny Liverpool and Leigh Loop for starting off and continuing a good discussion about what you found interesting in the Jodcast archives. So Nick, do you have any suggestions to add to that? Any discussions that were particularly interesting? Uh, I, would, I, would, I would hate to. I would hate to choose a, a favorite because everybody who I've spoken to have been wonderfully good at explaining their research, and it's always a joy to discuss with people at length about their research and why they are, or what results they're achieving, and why they do astronomy. So that's all the feedback for the time being. Thank you very much to everybody who have sent us in their feedback. Remember, you can send us comments, questions, suggestions, points, notes through a variety of means to us at the Jodcast. You can get to the feedback page on the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. You can join the Jodcast group on Facebook. You can discuss issues in the Jodcast forum. You can subscribe to the Jodcast Twitter feed. You can check us out on iTunes and leave a review. Please do that if you've got iTunes and you download us via iTunes. Please do leave us uh, some feedback and rate us. That's much appreciated. And, of course, you can always send us real mail. All the contact details are on the Jodcast webpage. That's all from us for this episode of the Jodcast. It just remains me to thank Roy Schmitz for coming in and having a chat as well. You're very welcome. And we look forward to talking to you on the next episode of the Jodcast. Thanks very much for listening, everybody, and Jod on. Bye, everybody. A very interesting message, sir. Do we really need to bring this astronomer to justice? I don't think so anymore. Let's keep monitoring it on iTunes. Keep it on high alert. Yes, sir. Shall I resume the scan? Thank you, Alfred. Something has been found, sir. A temporal spike, it seems. Put it on screen. This is not where we should be. Let me go. I must kill John Connor. He is not here. I will adjust the settings on my teleport. You are an educator 101. I am a T-2009. You are inferior. Settings adjusted. Initiate teleport. Uh, Actually, Alfred, I think I will go and sleep. Very good, sir. Sweet dreams.